one of the songs that really means a lot to me. In fact, when I listen to it, it, it always really touches me deeply, is a song called Somebody's Praying. It was performed by Ricky Skaggs, the uh, bluegrass artist. And the lyrics go something like this, somebody's praying, I can feel it. Somebody's praying for me. Mighty hands are guiding me to protect me from what I can't see. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe somebody's praying for me. Angels are watching. I can feel them. Angels are watching over me. There's many miles ahead till I get home. Still, I'm safely kept before your throne. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe somebody's praying for me. And the bridge says something like this. I've walked the barren wilderness where my pillow was a stone. And I've been through the darkest caverns where no light has ever shone. Still I went on, because there was someone who was down on their knees. Lord, I thank you for those people praying all that time for me. You know what I've come to believe through the years? That there's something amazing that God does whenever somebody's praying. I mean, why else would have Jesus have given us that invitation in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. It's interesting that in the original Greek language in which that was written, those verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present active tense and voice. In other words, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And Jesus said, when we do that in prayer, look out, God's going to do something very special. He says, we're going to become the receivers because the seekers become the receivers. And when they receive, it is never for themselves alone, but so that many others may also be blessed. You know, when I was a college student, I, this is back when dinosaurs roamed the planet. You know what I mean. I mean, yeah, way, way back there. When I was a college student, I had an experience that changed my life and marked me deeply forever. Two friends and I, their names were Russell Wright. His dad was a pastor in Jamaica, Queens, New York. And the other guy was Judge Pippin. Judge was his real name. Judge Pippin and I, we were all followers of Jesus who were rather desperate. We looked at the conditions around us. We looked at our campus, Carson Newman, where we we're going to school. And we said, look, we think God wants more than this. Let's pray. And so at six o'clock, five days a week, Monday through Friday, we got up and sought God together. At first, we started praying in the lobby of one of the men's dorms. Now that was a pretty public place. We, we didn't know that it would ever be more than the three of us and we didn't think we'd be in anybody's way, but that's where we started praying. But soon God began to draw others. And before we knew it, we had a dozen people praying there in the lobby, men and women coming together, all students at the school, praying for revival and awakening. 
we thought, well, we can't just stay here. We, this, is, this is too much of a public place. And so the school agreed to give us a room in the Student Activity Center. Oh, it was so small. We were practically on top of each other, but within four weeks, there were 70 people jammed into that little room. Judge and Russell would bring their acoustic guitars, would strum a few songs, we'd sing together, we would exhort one another, we would share some scripture, but most of all, we were there to pray. And in four weeks, four people were saved by God's grace. Lives were being changed. People were being awakened to what God was doing in their lives. And as we came together, we shared testimonies of God's amazing work in us. And friends, let me tell you, that prayer meeting continued for three solid months on campus, eventually reaching well over 100 people coming together five mornings a week at 6 a.m. I've never been the same after that kind of intensive prayer effort. I'm reminded of what the great scholar J. Edwin Orr said. He was an expert on revival and awakening, wrote many books and many articles. He lectured extensively on revival and he said, I can conclude everything I've learned in all of my studies throughout decades of scholarship. I can reduce it all to one statement. Whenever God intends great mercy for his people, he always sets them a praying. There's something special when God's people come together to pray. You talk about a prayer meeting. It was a sweltering Saturday afternoon in August, right here north of the campus of Williams College where five young men met to pray. They came to pray in a grove of maple trees that used to stand here just to my left. And it was on this Saturday afternoon that God did something special. As they began to meet together, a thunderstorm began to come in from the west. And as the lightning flashed and as the thunder boomed, they began to run toward this haystack that stood right here on the edge of the meadow. It was here that they prayed fervently to God that God would send them to reach the people in the Far East, that God would use their lives to share the gospel with people who did not know Him yet. And God powerfully answered their prayers. This is the Haystack Monument. As far as I know, it's the only public monument in America to commemorate an historic prayer meeting. This is the birthplace of American foreign missions. Six years after this prayer meeting, the first American missionaries were sent to foreign lands and the whole endeavor of reaching out to people who are far from God, people who've never heard the gospel, it all began right here. This 
is an historic place. This is a place that reminds us of what God does whenever people really seek Him fervently. But this Haystack Monument is more than just the story of five young men who started a movement to evangelize the world. Oh, it's way more than that. It's the story of what happens whenever any of us come to God with open hearts and our wills yielded fully to Him and we say, God, would you use me in whatever you want me to do? This is the story of God's transforming presence in our lives. Now, the leader of this prayer meeting was Samuel J. Mills, Jr. He was the youngest of four surviving children born to Samuel and Esther Mills. Samuel's father, Sam Mills, Jr., was a pastor in Torringford, Connecticut in the same church, imagine this, for 64 years. Hey, I'm right now just 24 years into pastoring at Grace Fellowship. Can you imagine 40 more years? That is incredible to me. And so he grew up in a pastor's home and he had natural leadership abilities. Now, Sam's father was what in that day was called one of the New Divinity Men. What does that mean? These were a group of pastors who kind of followed the teachings of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was the greatest of the American theologians. He'd lived back in the uh, early part of the 1700s and died at the young age of 54. But Jonathan Edwards believed what probably you and I believe today. The people who followed those teachings were kind of the early evangelical Christians. In other words, they believed that just because you join a church doesn't make you a Christian. Or just because you receive communion or uh, do religious activities or even get baptized in water doesn't automatically make you a Christian. No. You see, Jesus taught in John chapter 3 that unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. So, pastors like Samuel Mills' uh, father, Sam Mills Sr., would often challenge their congregations. They would look at them and say, examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. And when the spiritual life in the church was growing a little stale, they would ask people to pray for revival and awakening. And so there was a lot of prayer for awakening going on in the late 18th century in the United States. In fact, God answered those prayers. He brought awakening to 150 churches in Massachusetts and Connecticut. And so there were many people coming to faith in Christ. In 1798, there were 30 village churches in the northern Connecticut Valley that God did some awesome things in. In fact, in a two-year period, 1,700 souls were converted and brought into the roles of the church. But it greatly impacted the young people. Samuel Mills was a teenager, 15 years old at the time, 
and his two older sisters were converted during that awakening in 1798 to 1800. Young people began to get together and pray wherever they could, in homes, in barns, in schoolhouses, out in the open, and they would testify to the fact that God had changed their lives and saved their souls. And Samuel Mills Jr. had witnessed all of that, but he himself was not converted. It was three years later, while he was continuing his studies with a local headmaster of a school, that one morning before going to school, Samuel Mills Jr., the leader of this haystack prayer meeting, was lovingly confronted by his mother, Esther. You see, she had dedicated her infant son to God as a missionary. Now think about this for a moment. The reason that was so unusual is because at that time, and Sam had been born in 1783, at that time there were no American missionaries going to foreign lands. Oh, there were some missionaries to the Native Americans, people like John Elliot and David Brainerd and others. And by the way, if you want some inspiring reading, you can read David Brainerd's journal, which Jonathan Edwards did an introduction to. And you can read some of the writings of John Elliot, and they will give you a sense of the commitment involved in these early American missionaries to the Native Americans. But hear me, no missionaries were going to foreign lands. And yet Esther Mills had the vision to say, God, would you use my son to be a foreign missionary? That was staggering. And so she asked him, what is the state of your soul? She asked him where he stood with God. And he was honest and shared with her that he had not come to peace with that yet or come to know Christ in a personal way. But as God's providential timing would have it, later that day, on his way to school, he had a profound conversion experience and his life was never the same. Just a few months later, after that, while plowing on the family farm, Samuel Mills Jr. felt a call to foreign missions. He felt that God wanted him to give his life to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ in foreign lands. By the way, parents, when you pray for your children, I believe you set in motion a powerful ripple effect in their lives. And I believe that God will honor your faithful prayers. It doesn't mean he strips away their free will. Not, that's not what I'm saying. But time and time again, history shows how that the prayers of parents for their children often, often were fulfilled in a wonderful way. Well, in 1806, Samuel Mills Jr. entered what was then the all-male Williams College here in Williamstown, Massachusetts. At that time, the college consisted of just two fairly simple buildings. The West College, which was the home of freshmen and sophomores, and then the East College, which also sat right there on 
present-day Route 2, which was the exclusive domain of juniors and seniors. Now get this part. There were only two full-time professors in that day and two additional teachers. Are you ready for this? The tuition was a whopping $12 a year. Can anybody say inflation? Yeah, inflation. And the room and board was less than $1.70 a week. At that time, Williams College, along with many other colleges around this young country, were riotous party places. The students generally did not know God or have a relationship with God. Now that may sound strange to some of you who have tended to think that everybody in America in the 1700s was surely a Christian, not at all. In fact, here at Williams College, alcohol was a big issue among the students. They had beer and wine readily available, but it was rum that caused most of the problems. Rum and college students just didn't seem to mesh real well together. In fact, can I tell you a little tidbit that's interesting? In Samuel Mills' graduating class, his class valedictorian could not give his valedictory speech at the appointed time because he was drunk as a skunk. That tells you something about the condition of things. In fact, in the first seven years of Williams College, it was founded in 1793, and in the first seven years, they graduated 93 students. Only seven of them were Christians. But friends, that all began to change in 1805. In 1805, here at the Congregational Church in Williamstown, which was pastored by Reverend Seth Swift in those days, God began to pour His grace out in a powerful way. Remember what J. Edwin Orr said, whenever God intends great mercy for His people, He always sets them a-praying. And people had been praying, and God began to move. Several students were converted. One of them, a junior named Algernon Bailey, was severely ridiculed and persecuted by his fellow students. But because of his gracious and magnanimous spirit, it just tended to cause even more of them to consider the claims of Christ, and a number of the students were converted. So when Sam Mills Jr. enrolled here as a freshman in April of 1806, there was already a full-blown revival going on on campus. And because of his natural leadership gifts, the fact that he had grown up in a pastor's home and had a little more biblical training than most of these students, he quickly became a leader among his peers. He would lead them in Bible studies. And then he led two prayer meetings each week. One of them met on the south side of the campus, down by the river, beneath some willow trees, where they met on Wednesday afternoons. And then on Saturday afternoons, they would meet here to my left in a big grove of maple trees and they would seek God together. It was on that particular Saturday afternoon in August, 1806, that Byram 
Green later says that was the first time that Samuel Mills introduced the idea that we, we could be the first ever to take the gospel to the Far East, to Asia, to India, to China. And he said, we can do this if we will. Now, for some reason, there weren't as many people that day. Usually there was at least a dozen that gathered for this prayer meeting. But on that sweltering August afternoon, only five of them showed up. And Byram Green later recalled, he said, we can be the ones, we can obey God here. We can do this if we will. And that became somewhat of a mantra, a motto for this young group of missionary minded people. They said, by God's grace, we can do this if we will. Now, Harvey Loomis, one of the names on this monument, who was a boyhood friend of Sam Mills, he objected to what his friend was saying. He said, Samuel, no, foreign missionaries would immediately be martyred if we showed up with the gospel. He said, no, we've got to have a military presence. We have to come in and have the military civilize and subdue the people first before we can ever safely preach the gospel. And as the debate went back and forth and as the thunderstorm began to roll in, Samuel Mills said these words, let's make this a matter of prayer here beneath the haystack as the dark clouds are going and the clear sky is coming. They prayed together they asked God to consecrate them and send them in his name to foreign lands. Then they sang a hymn and returned to the campus. Well, after Haystack, prayers continued in the town. In 1808, Samuel started a club called the Brethren. It was for those people who were willing to commit themselves to being missionaries. That was the requirement to get in the club. You had to be committed to being a missionary and give your life to that. They also sought out leading pastors around New England that could mentor them and help them. They read missionary sermons and tried to learn and be inspired. And then Samuel and the brethren went on to Andover Seminary because that's where they were gonna be further trained and get ready to be effective ambassadors for Christ. They sometimes met here in Williamstown while they were here in the home of a woman named Mahitable Bardwell. Can I tell you something? In heaven one day, why don't you make an appointment to meet with a dear elderly widow, that's who she was, Mahitable, what a name, huh? Mahitable Bardwell, she was a great cook, and these students would meet in her kitchen, she would feed them some home-cooked meals, and they would pray together for God's work around the world. Oh, I wanna meet that dear lady in heaven one day. I wanna spend some time talking to Mahitable and just get to know her a little better. But they did more than pray. They prayed, and that was awesome, but they did more than pray, they organized. And they started a group 
called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. It was the first organization of its kind in America totally committed to sending missionaries to foreign lands. They raised money and six years after Haystack, the first group of foreign missionaries set sail for foreign lands. There were three couples and two single men. But Samuel Mills was not on board. You say, what? Wait a minute. He's the leader. He's the guy who's stoking the passion. He's the guy who's leading the prayer meetings. Why was he not on board? Good question. Now is probably a good time to share with you what happened to these five guys who were a part of that monumental Haystack prayer meeting. So come and join me over here. Let's talk about them for just a moment. Samuel Mills, the leader, didn't go to foreign missions right away. He became a missionary statesman, if you will. He did two huge tours of the Mississippi Valley region and also tours of the Western territories. Remember what else was happening at this time in the U.S. The Lewis and Clark expedition, this core of discovery was just returning from their mission to the great Northwest and they were looking for an all water passageway to the Pacific, which they did not find of course. But they returned helping Americans understand what lay to the West and what kind of peoples were there. And so Samuel Mills promoted missions that would go and take the gospel to the Native Americans. He also helped found the American Bible Society. But in 1818, Samuel Mills Jr. went for the first time on a mission trip to Western Africa. That had been his lifelong dream and finally he was going. He was only 35 years old. He was single, a bachelor all of his life, never married. But on the return trip, Samuel Mills passed away. He had given his whole life to promote the cause of Christ and had followed the Lord faithfully. But what about this second guy here, James Richards? James Richards became a missionary to India. And after just two years there, his health began to fail. His eyesight left, he began to go blind, and he died there in 1822, having given his life full out for Jesus Christ. And then there's Francis Robbins. Francis Robbins became a home missionary in Vermont and New Hampshire. And then later in 1816, Francis Robbins went to Enfield, Connecticut, where for 34 years in Enfield, he served in the same congregational church, serving faithfully, preaching the gospel and sharing God's love. What about Harvey Loomis? Harvey Loomis was the boyhood friend of Samuel Mills. He and four other couples started a pioneer church in Bangor, Maine, a rough coastal town, and he spent his life there preaching the gospel. On a winter's morning, January the 2nd, 1825, Harvey Loomis walked a third of the mi a, mi a mile, a third of a mile in a blinding snowstorm 
from his house to the church house. And as he entered the pulpit, he collapsed and died. Now this is a little bit eerie, but as they found his sermon notes in his coat pocket, the title of the sermon that day was, This Year Thou Shalt Die. Harvey Loomis gave his full life for Jesus Christ. And what about this final person? What about Byram Green? Byram had been converted in 1805 in the Congregational Church when the revival broke out. And he too committed his life to be an ambassador for Christ. He pastored for three years, but his health was being wrecked by the pressure of the pastorate. His doctor told him, you can't go on this way. And so wouldn't you know it, Byram Green went from being a pastor to a politician. That's right. He became a New York State legislator and Senate member. And then in 1843, Byram Green became a member of the U.S. Congress. It was he who 48 years after Haystack in 1854 came right here and pointed to the very spot where this great monument now stands. He said that's exactly where the Haystack was this very spot is where we knelt and prayed for God to send us around the world with His gospel. What an amazing story. What an answer to prayer. I told you earlier, I love that song, Somebody's Praying. Mighty hands are guiding me to protect me from what I can't see. Oh Lord, I believe. I believe somebody's praying for me. Can you believe it if I tell you that in the 60 years after this Haystack prayer meeting, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions sent 1,250 men and women to foreign lands to preach the gospel. Many other mission organizations <coughs> were started and they sent hundreds of other missionaries. But can I tell you what most of those early foreign missionaries packed in as they left on ships to sail to where God was sending them? They packed in an interesting sort of suitcase. They packed in their casket. What a powerful statement of commitment. <coughs> they knew, they knew that they were going probably never to return and that they were going to be buried in this very casket. What a powerful statement of commitment that was. So what's the bottom line? What's the bottom line of all of this? What happened to these five men who met here under a haystack on a hot August afternoon in 1806? They experienced the transforming presence of God. That's what happened. They were willing to say, Lord, would you send me where you want me to go? Here I am. I'm willing to go, Lord, and be your ambassador. They said, we can do this if we will, 
But my question as we wrap up today is this, what about us? What about you and me, members of Grace, people in this capital region and beyond? Will we be willing to do what they did? Will we be willing to take responsibility for the lost souls in our own generation? Would we be willing to say we can do this if we will? Would we be willing to go not just across the sea, but across the street and across the room and have a conversation with someone who does not know Christ yet? Will you and I be willing to say by God's grace, we can do this if we will?